Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a God who sees. We praise you for seeing us mourning in our lonely exile, mourning in our separation from you. And we celebrate, we thank you that you addressed that separation by sending Emmanuel, God, with us. We were without you, and so in God the Son, you came to be among us and to rescue us from our sin, that we might know you and serve you in righteousness and holiness all our days. We praise you for these things, and we pray, Father, that as, as we look forward to, in the next day, celebrating amongst ourselves, the birth of Christ and all that that means. We ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be kind to us by using your word this morning to prepare us to do that soberly and appropriately and joyfully. We need your help in these things. We ask for it in the name of the King, Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to read verses 57 through the end of the chapter. So as you find your place there, if you would stand with me, and I'll read that section of of the text. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, 
being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You may be seated. So obviously we're we're continuing to pause our study of Hebrews to spend a couple of weeks focusing on the birth of the Lord Jesus, its meaning and and its significance. This season can be filled with so many events and so much busyness that it it can be very easy to, to pass the season while missing the main thing. The main thing. Most people at some point in their lives begin to question just what is the main thing. That is, what, what is life all about? And for, for, for most people, that, that's not just a, a philosophical brain teaser. We want to know the answer to that question so that we can understand how we fit into all of that. What, what is our purpose? In light of what life is, who and what should I be? And, and I suppose that, that that is what many people mean when, when they talk about someone trying to find themselves. They're trying to find, what is this all about and what does that mean for me? The problem is is that people seeking truth outside of the Bible, they're they're almost guaranteed to get the the answer to that first question wrong. What is life all about? They they will almost inevitably arrive at the idea that life is is about being unique in some way or, or fulfilling their potential or filling their lives with, it, with as, as many unique experiences as they can before they die. In other words, they miss the meaning of life, and, and so then they misunderstand their purpose. And they spend life chasing a completely elusive meaningfulness. The most blessed among people are those who early in life get it. That they, they know what life is about and they know how that informs who they are and what they are to do. One, one of those blessed people was John the Baptist. John was spared the trouble that many others suffer in that he knew from his earliest days what life is all about. He knew that life is knowing and serving God. And so he was crystal clear then about who he was to be and what he was to do. We we have in Luke chapter 1 two miraculous conceptions. There is the conception of of John by Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're they're described in two ways early in in Luke chapter 1. Old and barren. Old and barren. So we've got a miraculous conception when, when, when John is conceived. But there's another conception. Mary 
a virgin conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We considered briefly last week uh, an interaction that these two pregnant mothers had with one another in verses 39 through 45. From that interaction, it's obvious that, that of these two babies, there is one about whom everything is to do. It's Mary's baby. Elizabeth, herself pregnant with John, calls Mary's baby, my Lord. John is then born, as as we've just read about, and his father, Zechariah, who had been mute since before John's conception. You can read about that earlier in the chapter. Zechariah's mouth is opened. He blesses God. and, And then we find that with his newly reclaimed faculty of speech, he prophesies. Now, some, some commentaries that I have seen would characterize Zechariah's speech here as a prayer, but it is not. A prophecy is not a word to God, but it's a word from God for someone or someones. And the prophecy itself makes clear that the baby John is the intended audience. Zechariah speaks a word from God to John. What's the content of of that prophecy? Zechariah lauded the coming of another baby, Jesus. Zechariah signaled to his own newborn son that the coming Jesus was central to everything and that John's life would revolve around him. It's all about Jesus. And your life is about knowing Him and making Him known. That's That is the first message that John ever heard. And I would suggest that while John was unique, this is intended to be understood by the reader as offering answers to ultimate questions for us. What is life all about? And what should that mean for me? How I understand who I am and what I am to do. So Zechariah's prophecy, it suggests two applications for us. The first is, Praise God. Praise God. Look look with me again at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And that simply means praise God. And then Zechariah tells why. Why is God to be praised? Well, a Savior has come. Praise God, a Savior has come. There, There are a host of phrases in verses 68 and following indicating the coming of a Savior and what that means for the people. Again, John is not the Savior. John John is is hearing this as an eight-day-old baby. But it is not about him. It's about someone else. The Savior that Zechariah talks about had not yet been born. But like Mary earlier in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, he uses past tense verbs to talk about the certainty of what God is doing, will do through this Savior. He, He uses phrases like, He has visited us. He's visited us. That's a word that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament in instances where God acted miraculously to help someone or to keep one of His promises. It's used multiple times in the book of Exodus to talk about all of the miraculous things that God did in saving Israel from their slavery. For God to visit in the biblical mind is for God to intervene in a saving work. He says also that, that He has redeemed His people. And we use that phrase all the time, redemption, all the time, that we may at times forget by familiarity 
what actually that is referring to. Redemption is, is liberation from an oppressor. It's to be freed from something. And, and that also is language that comes to us from the Exodus. Zechariah says that, that he, God, has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. A ram's horn was a symbol of strength. And so what Zechariah is saying here is that God has raised up this strong agent of salvation through the line of David. Mary's baby is going to be the heir to David's throne. And and again, all all of this is being said on the day of John's circumcision. After John's birth, Zechariah praises God for the future birth of another baby, the long-awaited king. I mean, what stronger way could there be to indicate to a person where they fall in terms of ultimate priorities? I mean, th- think about what would happen or how, how you would receive it if, if on your birthday, everyone around you, everyone that you care about and that cares about you, lauded the birth and existence of another person. I mean, that's a great way to, to put in perspective what you are all about and where you fall in the the, the pecking order, so to speak. You're not the center of the universe. This is a way of communicating this, John. You're not the center of the universe. He is the king, the coming king. There's good reason for this because this coming king has a singular mission. Zechariah says that, that he has saved us from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He saved us from our enemies and the hand of those who hate us. All of this language that Zechariah is using from Exodus and these references to enemies might lead us to think that Zechariah expects God to raise up this Davidic king to save the people from the Romans, similar to how God had saved the Israelites from the Egyptians back in, back in Exodus. And, and certainly, if that is what God intended, to raise up this king to, to free his people from the Romans, that would have been great news. But, as this prophecy progresses, it seems that when Zechariah uses that language from from Exodus, this language of defeating and freeing us from our enemies, he's using those Old Testament ideas to speak about redemption from enemies far more ultimate than the Romans. In verses 77 through 79, you can just glance down there, he mentions sin and death. we, we, We talked a good bit about sin last week. I won't revisit all of that, but just remember that that sin, our rebellion against God, resulted in death, which is separation from God. Sin, rebellion from God, led to death, separation from God. And that's a problem because we were designed by God to exist and flourish in relationship with Him. That's the point of, of Genesis 1 and 2. Man is unique among all God's creatures. He's created in God's image to serve and know Him. What is life all about? That. Life, my life, your life, the life of everyone outside of this building. Life for everyone across the globe is about knowing and serving God, which is why sin is so terrible, because it separates us from God. And separated from God... We're then something like boats in the middle of the Mojave Desert. We cannot be and do what we were created to be and do. And and so our our rebellion 
leads to separation from God, and, and it leads ultimately to eternal separation from God. So we live this life in separation from God, and then we are sentenced to the doom of separation from God forever. And so Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, he describes our, our default condition as fallen human beings as dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead, separated from God, and spiritually incapable of even wanting to rectify our doom because of how we are eaten up with this condition of sin. Now glance back up at verse 68. He has visited and redeemed His people. Redemption, again, that that is liberating someone from an oppressor, freeing them. Revelation 1.5 says this about Jesus. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. He's freed us. That's a verb that, that, that would be appropriate to use about someone being freed from shackles or released from prison. Sin was like, like the prison of our existence, but Jesus freed us by His shed blood. In Jesus' death on the cross, He paid the penalty for our sin. And, and further, he, he broke its power over us. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6 that, that Christ died, He was buried, and He was raised to walk in newness of life. And that those who repent and trust in Jesus, their, their connection to Jesus by faith is such that His death was their death to sin. And His burial was their burial. His, his resurrection is their resurrection to walk in newness of life. No longer enslaved to sin because He's freed us from sin. What about the enemy death? Jesus' resurrection sounded the death knell for death. Paul and John, they both have things to say about the demise of this enemy death. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And, And later in that same chapter, Paul quotes Isaiah and Hosea when when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So also John in Revelation 20 verse 14 writes of the vision that he saw, death and Hades were then thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus defeats our ultimate enemies, sin and death. Just after that event, is depicted in in Revelation 20, the the casting of death into the lake of fire. The next vision that John has is of a new heaven and a new earth where it is said that the dwelling place of God is with man. And, And that is by definition life. Death is separation from God. And because it is thrown into the lake of fire and death itself is dead, then those who trust in Christ have life. That is, they have life together with God in His presence eternally. So Jesus enables us to live in the reality of what life is actually all about. Jesus redeems people from separation from God unto life with God. And Zechariah talks here about the result of that in verses 74 and 75. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. 
that we might serve Him without fear. Fear of what? Fear of anything. But, But most immediate in the context is no fear of these enemies' sin and death. Sin and its slavery. And no fear of the judgment of death. That we might serve Him in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. In other words, God saves us through Christ from separation from Him that we might be in His presence that we might be and do what we were created to be and do. To serve Him and to reflect His holiness and righteousness eternally. That, that's what He means by all our days. Not, not all our days in this life, but, but all our days forever. So the first part of this prophecy is, is eventually, pray, essentially, praise God through the coming of the King, God has returned us to Himself. Now why would God do that? Zechariah, Zechariah reveals that it is to show His mercy and His faithfulness. To show His mercy and His faithfulness. I won't spend much time on this as we majored on it last week, but, but God promised back in, in Genesis 12 to Abraham that, that, that He would rectify all of this mess that has been created by sin. And God reiterated that promise in Genesis 15, and 17, and 22, and 25, and on and on and on until we get to, to 2 Samuel 7 when God promises to David that it's through David that the ultimate answer to all of these promises is going to come. Promise upon promise made by God to man that He would rectify man's problem of sin That leads to separation from God. He would have mercy on man's misery by redeeming him. And bringing him back to himself. That that is what life is all about. It is about being redeemed unto God that we might know and serve him in righteousness and holiness forever. Praise God. And second, proclaim the Savior. Proclaim the Savior. Let's look at verse 76. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. So the, the, the prophecy now turns from a word of praise regarding the coming of the king toward a word of calling to this forerunner. Ze- Zechariah is addressing the baby John. You, child. That, th- those two words in the original text are, are emphatic. You, you will be a prophet of the Most High. If life is all about knowing and serving God, and if, and if He, through His Son, has redeemed lost man unto that life, what could be a greater privilege then than being one who will communicate that to others? A, a life given to, sharing with others what it is all about and what that means to them eternally. John is going to be a prophet of God, and that means that he's going to speak for God. He's going to go before the Lord and prepare his ways. And he'll do that, according to Zechariah, by giving the knowledge of salvation. That, that, that's, that'll be the main idea of John's coming life work, to prepare the way of the Lord by giving knowledge of salvation. And, and you can read about John carrying out that mission here in Luke in chapter 3, or you can read about it in Matthew 3 or Mark 1 giving the knowledge of salvation. 
And according to Zechariah, that, that has at least four components. The first of which is proclaiming forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. The coming King Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. Removal of that barrier that prevents man from knowing and serving God. By His atoning death and His life-giving resurrection, Jesus Christ brings forgiveness of sins to people that are forgiven by God. And, and John is tasked with spreading that news. So how did John prepare the way for that work? If we were to go to, to Luke 3 or, or Matthew 3 or Mark 1, we would find Mark preaching repentance. Mark preached repentance. I'm sorry, Luke, John preached repentance. Repentance is, is a precursor to forgiveness. We all can only have one allegiance, one ultimate allegiance in this life. And if one would follow Christ, if one would know and serve God eternally, one must turn from sin. You can't have sin as your king if Christ is going to be your king. And so John proclaimed, the king is coming. Turn from your sin that you might be forgiven. The second component of, of John's mission of giving the knowledge of salvation is by indicating, sharing with people that this salvation is motivated by mercy. It's motivated by mercy. Zechariah notes that the forgiveness of sin is due to the tender mercy of our God. Now, the, the, the most literal way of writing this, I think if you write this down, you'll probably never forget what I'm about to say. The most literal way of rendering tender mercy is bowels of mercy. Or you, or you could render it entrails of mercy. Kind of odd, huh? Well, people in the ancient Near East, much like us, they would use different body parts as metaphors for human faculties. And so we say to people occasionally, hey, use your head. Now, what do, what do we mean? We all know what we mean. We, we do not mean try to use your skull as something like a hand. No, we mean use your faculty of reason. Think this through. Use your head. We, we do the same thing with the heart. Well, in, in the culture of, of Zechariah's day, the word for bowels or entrails was a metaphor for one's deepest emotions. So this, this phrase, bowels of mercy, the deepest, deepest place of mercy, that, that's not a phrase that, that we might use for when I see a fly in my car and instead of killing it, I, I roll down the window. That, that, that's like the most transient, the most superficial of mercies. But rather this, this phrase, bowels of mercy, the deepest mercy, that, that's a phrase that I might use to describe seeing my own son or daughter suffering such that I want to move heaven and earth to help them. It's the deepest and most acute sense of compassion for someone in misery. And that's what's moved God to bring forgiveness of sins. God's acting through Christ to, to bring mercy to those in misery. This is not a whim. It's not a small thing. Not, not a mere twinge of softness that, that God had in a moment of, of, of weakness, but, but rather it described the deepest of emotions in this unfathomable heart of God. And John, in proclaiming salvation to sinners, was to communicate that. This God, who is a perfect judge, 
and who is bringing justice on the last day. He is moved in the depth of who He is to bring mercy in the form of forgiveness of sin. Another component of John's message is that this forgiveness brings life from death. Brings life from death. And Zechariah likens salvation to sunrise visiting us from on high, giving life to those who sit in in darkness and in the shadow of death. I, I used to hunt deer, and one of the best times to do that is, is early in the morning, long before daylight. And so there were occasions when I would, by choice, go out into the woods in the middle of the winter and sit 15 feet off the ground in a chair that's basically strapped into a tree. A, a, a tree whose leaves a month earlier said, it is way too cold to be up here. And so they, they, they retired. But I'm sitting in that tree. It's, it's dark. It's cold. And legit hunters may not explain this kind of experience to you the way that I would. This is, this is my experience. I would begin to question everything in those hours. Am I insane? Is my nose still on? Am I going to see my family again? Zechariah's metaphor for separation from God, this is a great metaphor. Life separated from God, is, it is dark and cold. Very little makes sense outside of a relationship with God. Sin impedes all your faculties. And at the end of the day, all there really is meaningful to contemplate is the approach of death. I think many of us could, re- could remember what that's like. The darkness, the coldness, meaninglessness of life outside of God. I would sit in that tree stand in this crazy cold weather, absolutely dark outside. And eventually the darkness would begin to fade as the, as the sun would climb up out of the ground. And th- there are few earthly joys quite like that sense of the warmth of the sun hitting my face on those mornings. It's just a profound sense of relief. Everything then is different. All those questions that I would ask before, all those fade away and I would forget them in, in the light of that sun shining on me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God comes in the face of Jesus Christ. And John's privilege was to proclaim that to people sitting in the coldness, the darkness of life separated from God. The King has come. Repent and follow Him. And enjoy the light of the knowledge of God eternally. Reminds me of the blessing that God told the priests to lay before the people in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. I'll read it to you. You're likely familiar with this. Again, this is Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So also Zechariah likens this salvation to a pathway of of peace. It's a pathway of peace. It's the light of Christ that guides our feet to the way of peace. That is, He leads us to God. He leads us from separation from God to the presence of God. The the biblical concept of of peace is is a large concept. And we may tend to think of of peace as, as the cessation of hostility. And certainly that idea is included in the Hebrew idea of shalom, but it's, it's much bigger than that. It is, it is the entirety of the human being experiencing wellness. It's total well-being. Life separated from God is, is abject turmoil. It's the opposite of peace. Nothing is well. Nothing is right. The way of peace is life lived in relationship with God. As, as he says back in verses 74 through, through 75, it is serving Him without fear and righteousness and holiness all our days. That is biblical peace. It's what we were intended to do and be. And Jesus leads us there through the forgiveness of sins by His blood. Now, the meaning of life hasn't changed since Zechariah uttered these words to John. Life in 2023 is knowing and serving God, enjoying His presence. Jesus prayed in John 17, This is life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. So you and I, we we do not have to ask, what is life all about? We know, just like John knew. And we've just briefly considered John's calling as a prophet, and his was definitely a unique station in in salvation history, but John's life was not so unique in function. Ours is very similar, because we too are called to give the knowledge of salvation. I know you're familiar with it, but I want to read to you once again Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus said to His disciples just after His resurrection, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So John was a prophet. We are disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ, which means we do what Jesus did, and that is to proclaim the good news and to to, to bring people into the presence of God through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has provided in the shedding of His blood. John, John was a prophet. We are disciples. John went before Christ. We follow after Christ. Christ has come already. So we follow Him in His message and in His mission. John's ministry was to the Jews. We find here in Zechariah's word here that he's to proclaim salvation to his people. Our mission is to the Gentiles also. Not Jews only, but Gentiles also. For Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. In those ways, we're a bit different than John, but the call of our lives is very similar. God has 
through Christ, redeemed sinners from outer darkness and brought them into His marvelous light that they might enjoy God as they were designed to do. So like John, we also should be among those who both enjoy that salvation and proclaim it to others. Now, Christmas, obviously, is upon us. Some of us are going to have very limited opportunity to talk to any non-Christians about all of this before tomorrow. But, but that this passage comes in the context of, of Christ's birth does not confine its truth and application to the Christmas season. This is, this is an all-the-time thing because we live in the context of a king who has come and who is coming again. And so we should take our ministry every bit as seriously as John did his. We ought to be all about what life is all about, and that is knowing and serving God. And that should inform who we are and what we are to do, and that is to proclaim Christ to the nations. So I encourage you, not just today, tomorrow, but in the coming days and for the rest of your days, Tell others what God has done in Christ to rescue them from darkness and bring them to light. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, that what we've considered in the last few minutes would, would stick with us in the sense that it would inform, first of all, how we observe the next day, day and a half, that it would infer, uh, inform all of our, our family celebrations, our conversations with friends, our conversations with strangers. We pray, Father, that these things would be on our mind and heart as we, as we celebrate the coming of Christ this Christmas. And we pray, Father, that these things would inform our lives far beyond this Christmas into the coming years and throughout our days. That we would be well aware, that we would be conscious of the fact that the main thing what life is all about is knowing and serving you in righteousness and holiness all our days. Father, so convince us of this and grant us so much hope in it and joy in it that we would, like John, obey the commission that we've been given, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So many people out there with ultimate questions, Father. Please grant us the boldness and joy of those who have the answers. Let us live those answers and speak them explicitly to the growth of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.